0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Our guest today is Michael Stringer, who plays guitar for Spirit Box, which really is doing impressively well right now. I actually had Mike on the URM podcast a few months back. And if you're a modern musician, in my opinion, you need to model what this guy is doing. He knows how to make things work in the modern age. I introduce you, Mike Stringer mike stringer welcome to the riff hard podcast hello hello can we talk about stupid riffs yes of course we can so i know we touched on it in the urm podcast when we talked about the holy roller riff but because riff hard is about riffs sure i want to talk about the holy roller riff which is not stupid but i know what you meant when you said that i want to i want to know more about how you define a stupid riff like in the good way because that riff's fucking awesome well, thank you.
1: You know what? That riff is... I call it stupid because it's just like... It came about in the in the dumbest way. And it's like the simplest riff I've ever made. So, you know, for me, it was just one of those things where we were sitting around and we had so much material written. And then we we're like, we just need like a hard-hitting song. And that riff just came out of nowhere. And we built it and we wrote it in like two hours. So, you know, I'm not... I don't know. Like, I'm kind of at the point now where I'm I'm learning how to catch when something's just catchy and just gets stuck in your head as opposed to like focusing on how many notes are in a riff so that was like really the first time that I've ever like leaned into something just being like well it's heavy so screw it and it's catchy and it's stuck in my head so let's just let's just record it and see what happens the amount of times that I've sat there and analyzed something and probably made it way worse because I was just counting numbers as opposed to like you know feeling it and just seeing if it got stuck in my head or not you know it's probably why. You know, it took so long to get this goddamn band off the ground because I was doing all
0: the wrong shit the whole entire time. (laughs) But it sure as hell has been moving fast ever since you did get it off the ground.
1: Yeah, super unexpected, to be honest, man. Really, really unexpected. This year has just been a total mindfuck, like,
0: through and through, 100%. (laughs) Like, is it because you didn't expect... I mean, you just said totally unexpected. So, yes, I'm not asking this to be redundant, but is it because you didn't expect it to move this quickly? Because obviously, you're not going to do a band at this point if you don't think it's going to have some success, right? You're not doing it to be a local yokel. Like, so obviously, you expected some success, but is it just the speed and intensity at which it came?
1: Pretty much, yeah. And at such an odd time, too, because, you know, like I've been doing bands and, and, writing and touring since i was 16 and you know like i once i got into my old band i wrestled a bear once and i kind of just because that was already it wasn't like a huge band or whatever but it was already established right it was out there yeah well it definitely was and it was you know the material was nuts and everything but i got to see the ins and outs of how things are actually you know supposed to be run or whatever and once that ended abruptly i was like well that was it I'm 25 now and I'm at a crossroads. So what the hell do I do? And yeah, the, the mindset was like, if I do decide to start something new, it's if I'm lucky, it's going to take like five years until something happens, if something happens. So the fact that, you know, with Spirit Box, we spent so much time trying to build a demand online, got to a point where we could tour. Then that tour got canceled. The moment that happened, I was like, well, that's it. We're, we're screwed. And then the moment that we got home, everything just went the complete reverse. Like all these doors started opening up and like starting in March once like the world shut down. So it was just a weird place to be where like all this negative shit was happening. And then, you know, the opposite was happening for us as a band. And we were just kind of just being like, this is fucked like on every level. <laughs> you know, like so many bands are like, what do we do? And we're just sitting there, you know, having all this stuff finally line up. And it was just a weird feeling.
0: Yeah, but it's not random. I don't know everything you guys do, obviously, that I'm not involved with. But anytime I've been involved with you, uh, and for people who aren't aware, like Spirit Box was on Nail the Mix in November. And I've only known you since August. But the brief amount of time that I've been involved with you guys, you guys are like a dream band to work with you always get everything to me super fast it's super pro you're basically DTF with promo like mm. it's uh <laughs> it's everything that you wish that artists would do like if you've noticed maybe you've noticed maybe you haven't but the artists are almost never involved with nail the mix and it's not because we don't want them to be they just don't give a fuck and that's fine they, there's no requirement. We're there to showcase the mixer. It's more about the mixer than the artist. So, if the artist gets involved, that's a bonus. But we would love it if they were proactive. And as you know, it's not that much work to like shoot a little promo and respond to some emails and do a podcast or whatnot. Like, sure. But like the thing is, you guys were just like fucking fast about it. And so, my thoughts are probably that that's how you guys are about everything that you're doing. Oh, yeah which is going to set you apart from almost every other band in the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're kind of obsessed in a way. Like I think I kind of touched base on it for a second there, but like, I think because there was so much writing on it and because our old, our last band just kind of out of nowhere, just stopped and, you know, everything was just, well, shit, what do we do now? I think collectively, well, me and Courtney, when we started everything, it was just like, if we're going to do this, like, it has to be done correctly and everything has to be perfect. Like we, we have to dedicate everything that we have into it. Like, so that's kind of just carried through the last three years of being an active band. You know what I mean? Like it's just been anything that we've, any opportunity that we've been been given or anything like that. It's like, if you're going to do it, do it right. Or don't do it at all. You know? So that's, that's the thing that we've really tried to push, whether it's like, you know, just, Making it happen and making music videos on your iPhone or whatever, and using hacked, not hacked, uh, cracked versions of Final Cut and stuff. Like, it, you just do it and you just make it work because what's the point in half-assing it? What's the point in like going into this already risky thing that likely, you know, nothing's going to happen with it? Or, you know, you, do you just go on full-on and, and just put everything you have into it and just see what happens? You know?
0: That's how I've always seen these things these things, uh, just because uh, I consider my career to be a collection of unrealistic things that worked out, like getting my death metal band signed to Roadrunner, like getting into the studio I got into, getting UMF The Grunt. All of those things are unrealistic on their own. But the thing that I did was A, go all out always um, and do everything I possibly could to stack the odds in my favor because I know and have always known that these things are not realistic and they don't work for most people. But since they do work for some people, there's things that they did. If you tap into what it is that works, you can make it work too. It seems to me like you guys identified those things and do them to the max.
1: Well, yeah, you know, thank you. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that this band was born online, you know? So anything that we did, it had to be done 100%. Like, you know, it had to be correct. It had to be presentable. It all had to be high quality. And, and, you know, like a lot of bands will spend so much time playing live and everything like that. And we kind of viewed that like we had already done that in our old bands. Like me and Courtney have been doing music for a very, very long time, like 13, 14 years and uh it's just like we don't need that experience of going out in a van and just kind of sleeping in walmart parking lots and stuff which you know like uh happy to do for sure but at the end of the day like creeping up you know into your 30s and stuff starting a brand new project you just have to analyze what's important and you have to figure out okay well i can rather you know slum it on this three-week diy tour and hope that you know stuff the point gets across there or i can just take that same amount of money and our van not breaking down and put it into certain things online and certain videos and certain content and stuff. So as far as like the content goes and everything and delivering it on time and shit, it's just because like, that's literally
0: all this band's done. We've only done like 14 shows. I bet you though, that with the way this year has gone, once touring resumes, whenever the fuck that is, that whatever slot you guys would have had prior to shut down is going to be a little different. I bet you that, you guys are going to be doing more. Not that there's anything wrong with after the burial. That's a sick tour. But I bet you that you guys will be higher up on the roster and we'll just be able to do bigger things as a result.
1: Yeah, you know what? It's kind of weird the last six months, like, you know, getting our team ready and stuff. It's like being all dressed up with nowhere to go. So now that we're actually discussing 2021 and we're talking about plans and stuff like that, it's just mind-blowing to me because the last little while with Holy Roller and now Constance and stuff, it's just been, you know, hopefully people like it. And now we have these people that are on our team being like, this is a thing. Like, we could possibly do this tour. And we're sitting there being like, how the hell did that happen? You know what I mean? Because everything's just been business as usual for us in the last six months to just make shit and
0: throw it out there. <laughs> Tell me if you think my theory is right about how bands should go about making it in this day and age. I think we come from an era where you got in the van played a ton of shows and uh use the internet as a tool to help yeah but like it's base is it basically you put out music on a cycle and uh you play a bunch of shows and you slowly build up your following i mean some bands were able to like get myspace fans to like help them speed that up but they still like the Suicide Silence and Child for cowboys, those bands they still were in a van doing that for a long, long time. I think that uh, nowadays it's reversed. Yeah, hundred like percent. Get big online first, then go tour. And if you do that right, I don't know if this is good or bad, but you can skip a lot of the, a lot of the bullshit. Now, I don't think that band should totally skip all of the bullshit, but how much of that do you need to do to get the the lessons you need to learn? But, uh, anyways, I think that that's kind of the the new roadmap for getting a band off the ground is build it online first, then tour.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and you touched, you know, you, you said a very important thing there. I think it is important to realize like what touring looks like and what being one of five looks like or even diy or headlining your own tour or whatever that's very important like when we were younger when i was like 16 or whatever like i spent four or five years actually four years in my local band just like literally touring canada relentlessly i think we toured canada like 30 times and i don't know why looking back at it but we were young and stupid and we figured like oh someone's gonna show up at the show and be like wow you guys sound amazing you know like that whole thing And, you know, if I would have known what I know now, like I would have been like, hey, there's this thing called Facebook. Hey, there's this thing called YouTube. You know, like, let's start putting our shit up there. You know, know, what's
0: interesting is by the time I wrestled a bear once was around, Mm -hmm. which was towards kind of around when my band was around to a degree. Like, you guys came around towards in the last year or two of our thing. And uh, I feel like even our bands were on the tail end of when – touring all the time in a van was relevant right but like the industry around us told us that that's the thing you have to do yeah but i think that by even by the mid 2000s it was becoming less and less important bands just did it because they thought that's what they had to do but i think that that's more of a thing that you had to do pre-internet how else would you get the word out there's just you had to
1: yeah and i think (laughs) you said a very important thing too the people around you telling you you have to do it you know it's like I need to feed my kids. You got a tour. (laughs) You know, that whole thing.
0: Yeah, what difference does it make to them if you have to drive uh, 18 hours through the mountains in the winter? Like, they're in an office. They don't know the difference. Now, I'm not saying that to rag on business types because they're not all scumbags. No, not at all. No, I mean, I know great managers and I'm friends with some of them, but there is an element in the music industry that we're all familiar with who do not give a fuck first of all, about your livelihood or your safety. And they also are not real business people and they don't know, they don't know the first thing about business. They just are people who wanted to be in the industry or they were in a band that failed or, or whatever. They, they're scumbags that, um, that see musicians as easy targets because musicians don't generally educate themselves on business either. And, uh, so they prey on them and, uh, we've all been, we've all known those types. And I think those types were, there were a lot more of them, uh, in the two thousands era, they kind of can't survive the way they used to now, in my opinion.
1: Lots of sharks, man. they don't they're not the ones that have to show up in you know Altona, Manitoba when you show up to this little community hall and there's eight people there and you've driven 18 hours to get there. like they, they're not there doing that. And I think back then a lot of managers from reputable uh, management groups would prey on small bands and be like, yeah, you know, if you pay me a monthly fee, I'll take you on. And when you're when you're when you're young, you're like, oh no way. Like we got we got handpicked, you know. Like when you're like 17, 18 years old, you think it's a, a huge handpicked
0: thing, but... to pay this guy's light bill.
1: Yeah, it's it's incredible. I I love doing that. <laughs> Direct deposit.
0: I think that with the tools that bands have available to them now, they just won't put up with that same kind of stuff as much as they used to.
1: No, we're we're very fortunate to have an amazing manager. But you know, without his guidance, at certain times, I could have I could definitely see certain aspects of Spirit Box going south. For sure. Because we were just so, when we, especially when we first started, cause he's been there since day one. But when, when we first started, we were just so adamant and like itching to play. And you know, the whole time he was just like, just hold it out. Just, we're going to do this. We're going to build it online. Like there's no point in going out when there's no demand. And I'm really thankful for that.
0: So you got one of sure. the good ones.
1: Yeah. We got a good one. Jason Majo. Oh yeah. I like him. Yeah. He's the man. I've known him for quite a while. Yeah. He mentioned that
0: for the URM stuff. He's
1: like long, long time. No talk.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That you know how it goes, like you work with someone, and then for whatever reason, nothing went wrong. You just don't cross paths again for a while.
1: Yeah, it happens.
0: That's actually been a really interesting part of uh, doing nail the mix and stuff is uh, the amount of people from my past that I've rekindled relationships with, like, uh, like for instance, the staff at Roadrunner. Uh, a lot, like when we parted ways with roadrunner it was a very amicable thing Mm -hmm. um like i asked them to let me go because i knew that we weren't big enough for them um and it was just like we think you're great we're all cool but like let's be real like uh you guys are after you guys need a band that's bigger than this and uh And I can't expect you guys to care about my band, like care enough to like really go for it because we're just not big enough and let's just call it what it is. And so we parted ways amicably and years later, a lot of those people have been like working for the bands that we've had on Nail the Mix or whatever, licensing stuff from those people. And it's like, it's great to have these relationships that go back a decade or more. And even if you go five or more years without talking to somebody, that's okay. As long as you kept it cool, I think. Yeah,
1: totally. Yeah. And I, I think this year especially has been awesome for that. Just, you know, people are just glued to their computers and their phones and shit. Like, hey, we should catch up sometime. You know what I mean? So I feel like that's kinda opened up some doors too for certain people. But yeah, I mean that's that's definitely good that you guys were able to have like a clean split. <laughs> I could see that going getting very messy very quickly if it wasn't.
0: <laughs> it could. Man, I, I feel like uh People take things way too personally in music. Yeah, it's I a very emotional industry. Not every business relationship is going to work out, but that doesn't mean that you have to be enemies or something. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah.
1: I don't get that mentality, man.
0: I no, I really don't. It's, it, there's some relationships that are not mutually beneficial. So there's no reason to continue it. But at the same time, if nobody did anything wrong... Like we as a band didn't do anything wrong. They as a label didn't do anything wrong. They're awesome. Uh, why, why would there be a, why would it be bad?
1: Yeah. It's like when you have your first manager and you pay him a month's retainer and he tells you that you just need to wear skinny black ties. Exactly. To become famous, and then you part ways and then and you just never talk to that person again. That's and then kind of b- button up flame shirts. Yeah. A hundred percent. Guy Fieri style. <laughs>
0: Man, I love those band pictures where it's like uh one dude in corpse paint, one dude wearing like khaki shorts and a baseball cap, then the one guy that's like twenty years older with a button up flame shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you know those local band pics.
1: Yeah, it's like, oh I can't I can't get to the photo shoot until I'm off work at five, so uh can I just wear whatever like
0: <laughs> What the fuck is it with warehouses? You know, it's just I don't know. I guess it's better than the mountaintop.
1: I guess so. Or the forest. Yeah. But guilty as charged. I, I did one warehouse video when we were starting. Because I mean, our budget hasn't? for our video was like 80 bucks. So Who hasn't? <laughs> but yeah, I know. It's almost like a rite of passage. I feel like if you can get that done earlier in your career versus like, you know, 10 years deep, it's probably for the best.
0: <laughs> so question about image, since we're talking about that. You guys have a very defined image in your videos, Which is different than like when you're just putting out social media updates, like you're normal people in that, which is interesting because there's some bands that feel like they need to be in character at all times, but that doesn't seem to matter with you guys. Like, what do you think is the importance of image for a band? Like, where does it, like, where does it, uh, fall for you thought wise as far as like priority or how much it matters for us the way that we just go about everything is just we're just like normal people but when it comes
1: to our videos and shit it's just you know like music videos especially i feel like you have to have some sort of you know like some sort of like grab you know what i mean whether it's like you know like in a lot of our videos because before we had like you know zero budget we would fixate on you know, an article of clothing or a certain color, like the color red or, you know what I mean? Like in Holy Roller, like how bright and vivid it was with like the flowers and stuff, just some sort of item or whatever that, you know, at the end of the day, someone can just fixate on and make their own thing in their head. Like, oh, well, she wore all yellow because of blah, blah, blah. When really it's just like an eye-catchy thing that just fits in the video when you don't have a bunch of money, right? So as far as like image goes for us, it's like we just... Are normal people and then we just make these music videos that we find to be like aesthetically pleasing you know and we're big horror buffs and we and i think as well as the nature of the band like we love paranormal stuff and the thought of all that stuff and we literally named our band off of a device that talks to the dead you know what i mean so it's like it has a very dark theme it has a very um you know it it's just kind of out there in a sense so i feel like the image kind of just plays itself because a lot of our stuff is dark and a lot of us our stuff is like almost on like the verge of horror but not really you know what i mean so it kind of allows us to, to look normal in photos and just go about our day or whatever but then at the end of the day people kind of pin this thing on us because our videos are so i guess in this genre different but
0: to me they're not they're just interesting in, in a way you know what i mean like it, it's just interesting that it doesn't come off as like didn't come off as fake or anything. Just comes off like cool videos.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you
0: <laughs> for
1: Holy Roller. The real story is, is that our friend had like six hundred dollars worth of flowers
0: left over from a wedding. Do you mind sharing what your budget was for that video?
1: Well, we're fortunate enough that our bass player's wife is an incredible makeup artist, so we paid her a couple hun- like a couple hundred bucks, and then borrowed all the flowers, built the pyre, and yeah, I mean, honestly, we probably spent four hundred bucks on that video.
0: Amazing. <laughs> well, the reason I'm asking is because a lot of people think that they're being held back by lack of funds. Right. When in my opinion, it's always been they're being held back by lack of creativity.
1: It's very daunting to, to think about making a video and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like I view it like, well, we need one. So I can ra- we can rather make this shit or we can just go without. And I think the song's great. So I don't want to go without. So let's just Let's just see what we can come up with. And at the end of the day, if I cut it and I edit it together and it's not good, we just don't show anybody. You know what I mean? It's it's the act of actually doing it that's important because you could fucking make it and then sit there and be like, oh, actually this rules. Like, that's amazing. Or you can figure out what you need to improve on. You know, like I'm not saying that every video that we've made has been incredible. A lot of them have gotten buried for a reason because they were filmed on an iPhone. But at the end of the day, like it, it was a stepping stone to get us to the point where we could do decent ones if we were in a pinch and everyone's attention span's so shot that, you know, like it, they're probably not going to discover the quote unquote bad ones
0: so, you know, like just do it <laughs> Well, there's two things that I think are key here One is it goes to show that for something to go viral you don't need a huge budget and for a band to put out a video that people like you don't need a huge budget I think that should be a very, very strong lesson learned from this conversation. But also, one thing that I think holds a lot of people back is they're afraid to finish things and afraid to put them out because they're not perfect yet. And like you said, stuff gets buried. Like My philosophy with putting stuff out that's not that good these days is just put out more stuff that's better. And then eventually... It'll get buried just because of people's attention spans and the speed at which social media regenerates itself. hundred percent. There's a lot of songs that I put out where I'm like, what? Yeah.
1: Like, and, and that, that's the thing. It's like the ones that, resonate with people and stuff will always be the ones that you know everyone listens to and that's great and then you can figure out what to play live and blah 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 but like you're not always gonna hit it's just like in your opinion like in my, in my opinion a lot of the stuff that we did earlier on like i'm just like i don't want to play that shit you know what i mean like <laughs> and it also helps that like we haven't had to play live so i haven't had to really like play them live but yeah i, I feel like every artist has certain material that just like maybe later on you're like
0: oh, i wish that could have played out a little differently you know, And that's just that's the way it goes. So you know what's funny to me? Not funny, but it's funny. When I see people complaining about how these online platforms are a scam or a ripoff or they don't work, rather than think to themselves, maybe what I'm putting out there doesn't resonate with people. Because obviously they work. Like I, I hear about this with like Facebook ads. Facebook ads are a ripoff. It's like, no, they're not. You just don't know how to do it Right. They're definitely not a ripoff. YouTube is not trying to fuck you either. They want your stuff to get seen. If uh, no one wants to watch your stuff, it's not going to get seen the end. I think that it's unfortunate that when people attempt to do stuff online and don't get results that they're looking for, they blame the platform. When in reality, there's two things they should be looking at. In my opinion, they should be looking at, well, What did I do wrong? What could I do better? And then also, have I been doing it long enough to even make an impact? Like a lot of people, like we think spirit box happened fast because Holy Roller kind of exploded and now everyone knows who you guys are, but you were around for a few years before that. So it didn't, it's not like you guys got together in June made Holy Roller and then boom.
1: (laughs) Would be nice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this shit is not overnight or out of nowhere even though a lot of people were just hearing it for the first time it's never overnight or out of nowhere so um so yeah i I think uh, i think that if people focused on what they could do better more often rather than uh talking shit about the platforms they'd be better off
1: yeah there's the attitude needs to be what can i learn from this as opposed to what can i like poke holes in you know what i mean like it's like like think about like tiktok like To me, TikTok is, is, was an afterthought for so long. And we, I was like, I'm not going to make a band TikTok, blah, blah, blah. And like a month ago we finally did. And we just started throwing clips up there and literally was just the same stuff that we had online that was just in like bite-sized formats. And like, it's creeping up to being more of a platform for us than Instagram now. Why didn't you want to do it? Is the stigma behind it, and that because you're not 13. Well, yeah, there's that, and all, <laughs> and also it's like what you were just saying. It's like I was doing, you know, what you were just saying, where I, I was very ill informed and I just wasn't thinking about it the same way. But at the end of the day, it's just another platform, and if you don't utilize these things properly, or if you neglect them in a way, it's like you're just missing out on more people discovering you, and you're missing out on people. Finding your shit. It doesn't matter if they found your shit on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. The The fact is, is that they found your shit. And that's what you're trying to do. That's the whole reason why you're making music is to have people hear it. So it's like, why are you limiting yourself in that way? It doesn't make any sense. Neither do I. I don't have a personal one either. I, I don't think I would. But for the band, man, it's actually pretty wild. It's pretty crazy. Just give it a go.
0: It makes sense. I mean, it makes sense that it would work and that you guys would figure out how to make it work.
1: <laughs> it's just weird, man. It's a whole other world that... I won't explore, but uh yeah, it's uh it's definitely it's definitely an interesting platform for sure.
0: Man, I got to say though with TikTok, some people in that younger generation, like 18, 13 through 18 are fucking funny. Yeah. I actually have a lot of hope for that generation because uh got a great sense of humor. Yeah, they're funny and
1: they're killing it and making a shit ton of money.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't see myself doing a personal TikTok no. But at the same time I kind of felt that way about Instagram too. Sure, when it came out. That's dumb cuz Instagram's awesome.
1: Yeah, I know. It's it's it it's like you resist it for a while then you're like, "Uh, actually maybe this works." I don't know, you know, and then <laughs> you kind of just cave or whatever. <laughs> also, if you have other shit that's working really well, it's like why waste time building yet another thing because it's not a waste of time because these platforms don't last forever. That's true. I think for us too, it's just a, a different situation because like we're still in our like growing pains, you know what I mean? So we really have to be taking advantage of everything, you know, because it's like, why the hell not? You know, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to like wake up when I'm like 45 or whatever. It's been like, Oh, what if I just, you know, like, I, I don't know. So it's like, why not just be on everything and put everything into it? Even if it is
0: TikTok. So how much time out of your day goes into Music versus the other stuff?
1: Man, what a loaded question, actually, because recently, like...
0: Well, the reason I'm asking is because people are like, I just don't have time.
1: That's fair. I would be embarrassed to share my daily usage of my phone with you guys, especially as of late, because things have been so weird online. But, you know, like, it used to be that I would sit down and practice and I would, you know, learn all this stuff and try to get my chops up. And now I use writing as my practice time. Really? Because, like, I don't know, I've just kind of had to shift my mindset where it's just, like, i doing something and I have to, like, just do it and uh, taking away time to, like, learn a new, like, you know, sweeping shape as opposed to coming up with a chorus. Like, you know, so I ha- I've had to, like, evaluate what's more important. And for, for right now, for me, it's writing for this record and, and just making sure that all the songs are good. So, like... I haven't really been practicing all that much. It's mostly just shit online. Like that's all I've been doing. And I will probably sit down collectively for like, if I'm feeling it like two days a week and try to make riffs and try to make songs. And before it was like, I would practice every single day. So for the last like six months, it's just been really like everything's been changing and we've been putting off recording time and time again. So yeah, it looks a little different for me these days, but I'm not like mad at it. You know what I mean? It's just evaluating what's important at the time. And right now, like learning to shred isn't important for me whatsoever. Just writing like songs is important. And you already did that. Well, yeah. I I mean, I don't know. Like, I just, I think through leaving Iwabo abruptly and all the other shit that I did before then, too, it was all the same. It was all just really dissonant, fast, like tapping 24 seven, like a million notes per song. And once that ended and stuff, it didn't really make me happy to play anymore. I was delivering pizzas. Like, I left that band with no gear because I sold everything to be in that band. And then I came home, delivered pizzas, and started writing for Spirit Box. So I wasn't going to then just start writing another I Wobble record. Like, I was pissed. (laughs) So I just focused on, like, making songs that I thought were catchy because it made me happy. So that's kind of just how that
0: all started was just switching styles really so you kind of realized that there was nothing in it that it was a dead end for you for me personally yeah because it
1: didn't really make me happy anymore like when i started when i uh playing in a band when i was 16 it was the same shit it was like really technical and just you know for the sake of it and then i'm not saying that's what iwaba was there was definitely moments and it was definitely out there and there was a lot of respectable genre changes where we would go from like a gravity blast breakdown into like a jazz break or like a samba beat part or like a, you know, it was everything. So it was very challenging as a player to like cover all those bases, but it ended in a really negative ways. And then I was in a really horrible mindset when I came home because I didn't really have anything. And then it took a year to write the first record. And meanwhile, no one even knew that I was dead. So people were still like hitting me up and like, Oh, what's going on with that? Wow, man, what's, how you doing? Like you guys on a hiatus or what? And like, I didn't, I wasn't in the position to say anything because it wasn't my band and I didn't have the social media accounts. But the person that was in charge of making the statement saying that they were done just never did. So <laughs> up until from twenty end of 2015 to fall of 2017, everyone thought that I was still in that band. So yeah, I definitely wasn't in a good headspace because I was like sitting here working my ass off to make something new and I couldn't unveil it until it was out. So that's why like the style shifted so much and that's why like I just not saying that like some of our stuff isn't complicated especially the early stuff there's definitely like some stuff that even now like I probably wouldn't attempt to write you know what I mean because it's just whatever different musical priorities yeah and you know time has passed and I've quote-unquote evolved as a you know a writer and that's just something I'm not really interested in writing anymore I I still listen like I'll listen to it from time to time be like oh that was cool that was definitely a a time in my life you know but yeah it's just one of those things where I think if you do something Too much, or if if you just do the same, it's like like you hit this mental wall where you're just like, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, like it's just not for me.
0: Man, I think that writing simple stuff is far more challenging. I'm not talking about it as compared to like a band like Opeth or Dream Theater or whatever. That shit is hard as fuck. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, in general, writing something that's simple and catchy that is just perfect like a like a big mac or something she's like the perfect amount of everything that's way difficult in my opinion it's
1: damn near impossible yeah it's so hard it's so hard to do and like it hasn't been until the last year of like coming up with songs and stuff and then you know having working with dan which you know you know his workflow and everything the guy's a genius he's great and having his recommendations and suggestions being like, oh, let's cut this a little bit. Let's trim this down a bit. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's just been amazing to actually allow something to be what it is. You know what I mean? Like I was saying before, like coming up with something, allowing it to be four or five notes to then go into a verse, into a chorus and then repeating that intro riff. Like it's cool. It's And it's really, really hard to do. Cause like even now we're writing shit and I'm showing it to uh, the guys and stuff. And they're like, yeah, but like, that riff doesn't come back in the song. And like, you know, that's out of nowhere and shit. And I'm like still catching myself being like, Oh fuck, like I'm overcomplicating this. I need to like pull it back a little bit. You know, I feel like even five years ago, if you are like, yeah, I want to write like a pop structured metal song, people would be like, you're an idiot. You know, like, it's like, (laughs) this wasn't really a thing and it's just really hard to do. It really is. It's like hard to grab someone and, um, have a pop structure or even have a simple riff or whatever. So yeah, it's it's definitely been a learning experience, to say the least, for sure.
0: You could never really know when you're writing something if uh, it's going to grab anybody, right?
1: Yeah, like, exactly.
0: You never know. But have there been certain songs where you think you know? It's hard to say, really. There's a couple songs on the record where, like, because we were supposed to record
1: this thing last April, and then obviously it didn't happen. So now we're recording it in February. Thank God we have a date. Like, Jesus, we've pushed it back, like, five times. But there's songs that I listened to in the demos where still, I'm just like, I think this one's special, you know, like you kind of just have like a vibe where you're just like, I think this one's the one or whatever. And then, you know, sometimes it turns out that your team hears it and they're like, what are you talking about? It's this one. And then, you know, maybe they're right or whatever. But I had the same feeling with Holy Roller. And I even had the same feeling with this last one that we put out too, like the chorus of it and shit where like, you know, there's just certain times where you're like, I think people will really like, grab this. I think people will, will take to this and you're right. You can never really tell, but sometimes you just have like a, a small feeling where you're just like, I think this is the one, you know,
0: it's weird. With Holy roller, you're kind of saying that it went against your instincts. Yeah, definitely. So when you guys were done, even if it went against your instincts were you like, yeah, yeah, it wasn't until it wasn't until the song
1: was like actually written, written like the main riff I thought was just like a bonehead, almost like a Queens of the Stone Age riff. You know what I mean? Like just something kind of weird and out of it. How is that a bad thing? It's not a bad thing. It's just that I'd never done it before, you know? So it's like, for me, it was a new thing where I was just letting it be what it was. And it wasn't until like a few hours later, we had the the structure of it and we played it back where I was like, oh, like, okay,
0: cool. (laughs) I'm stoked on this, (laughs) you know? So you say that your uh, focus is on songwriting now. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that you do zero guitar work like as far as like just maintaining? It's okay if it's zero, I'm just curious. Dude, yeah, lately zero to be honest with you. Like in the last little
1: while it has not been a lot. It's just been only writing. So it's like I don't know, I just haven't really felt inspired to like sit down and open up like a a tab and be like, "Oh, a new exercise." Like I'm just kind of over it for the time being.
0: I think that people really need to do that hardcore in the first few years of playing because yeah. almost universally people stop wanting to do that so much after they've been playing for a while the people like kiko larero or whatever or Wes hawk they're not normal people like no. that who still practice six to eight hours a day that's not the norm whatsoever um and i'm talking about the norm within the realm of professional guitar players uh, i think the norm with professional guitar players is that they had a time period in the first five years where they practiced their fucking ass off and then their priorities shifted. If you didn't do that work in those first five years, it's going to be tough to catch up with it.
1: Yeah, dude, 100%. And I did go through that. I started playing guitar when I was eight and I was just obsessed with James Hetfield. I was obsessed with Metallica. I was obsessed with all that shit. And I learned that stuff back to front and then it moved over to like more technical stuff like protest a hero when i was like 15 and learning that stuff and then just you know kind of like pushing and pushing and then you know it, it wasn't until I wabo and then now this where it's like i have a singer so i'm not going to incorporate a lot of that stuff into my music because it just doesn't really lend itself for the most part to to you know what we're trying to accomplish with like this weird like some stuff's really ambient and some hard hitting, blah, blah, blah. If I was like in an instrumental band or if I was like a solo guitar player, like, of course, like, yeah, like I have so much admiration and and everything for, for those guys, like guys like Wes. And you know, they're just like literally untouchable in my opinion, you know, and that's incredible. But at the same time, like it just doesn't really lend itself to the style of music that I play. So for me, it's just like, I'm taking up time that I could be trying to write and like, you know, finishing the record. Instead, I'm sitting here like, you know, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work to, to learn new stuff.
0: I also don't think that he has to try to be passionate about doing that.
1: No, I think he not. just
0: is, and that's why he does it.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: If you're not, you're not going to put in the kind of time required to be on that level as far as that kind of stuff goes. Um, so I don't think that any of these dudes who do the eight hours a day of technical practice after they've been playing for 15 or 20 years, uh, I don't think that they're trying to be that guy they just are that guy they just are they're just like born with the instrument in their hand yeah i i
1: definitely agree with you 100 like i went through that phase of trying to be the fastest guitar player in the world didn't we all yeah and i then went on youtube and found a bunch of children that were way faster than me and that completely killed the entire momentum of that you know mindset i was like well it's done like you know i can't do that so may as well Move on to something
0: else,, <laughs>
1: like have you seen Jason Richardson play? <laughs> man <laughs> just insane. I don't understand <laughs> no, me either. doesn't make any sense. <laughs> the guy's insane
0: yeah <laughs> he's uh he's got something crazy going on with his abilities. I don't understand how he's able to do that stuff. dude, it's
1: like just everything's locked, like you know when you watch some players and maybe their right hand isn't as linked up with their left.
0: Yeah, like, maybe you can tell they're human.
1: Yeah. Jason doesn't have that. Everything is just, like, the same touch, the same feel. Like, pick attack is always, like, if you were to think about it as velocity sense, it's always
0: 127. You
1: know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, it's mental. I've never seen a guy do that before.
0: I remember, because I worked on his stuff back in, like, Chelsea Grin days and stuff, and I remember a lot of people were talking shit about him saying that like it's not real. It's like no, it's real. This that's how this guy plays. It's I insane, I know, but like uh that is reality. There are people like that in this world. Yeah. Question about Spirit Box music. So, people are loving the ethereal elements. That's one of the things that they're digging just as much as the riffs and the vocals that At least uh, the Nail the Mix crowd was all about that. Can you talk a little bit about where that stuff comes from? How you create it, how you cultivate it?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, like in our last single that we just put out, like the Constance, the softer song, a lot of that just comes from tail ends of like reverb effects or certain synth sounds and stuff that are stretched. A lot of it being fucked up with like, you know, certain just distortion or whatever and a lot of Valhalla (laughs) mostly mostly Valhalla (laughs) which one uh we use we use a lot of the uh room and the shimmer shimmers holy shit amazing so much of that stuff can just go for hours but I don't know know, the primary focus with all the clean stuff and everything and you know definitely have taken a lot of inspiration from bands like Monuments and Tesseract and stuff like that is you know like having that more tinny clean sound which, you know, like in, in a lot of the newer stuff, we're not really full on doing as much as we were doing like in like the, the first record that we did. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of it is just stacking as much, like as many guitars as possible and making them not sound like guitars. Like uh, the amount of times that we've had like random tail ends of stuff that we just stretched or like I was saying, or even just piling on as many plugins as possible to make it sound like a synth. It, like majority of the stuff... I will try to go out of my way to make sure it is guitars. And then anything on top of that is just like, you know, Dan's just got an insane library of synths and different piano stuff. And his effects are just crazy.
0: So, well, I I know you're giving some credit to Dan, but he was giving a lot of credit to you guys about this stuff.
1: Well, he's, he's very kind to do so. (laughs) A lot of this stuff, you know, I'm not, I'm not really proficient when it comes to, you know, which VST to use, like synth-wise or, or, you know, whatever it is. I'm not really good with a keyboard. um. So I will try to make sure to use as many unconventional sounds with a guitar as possible and then just, you know, make as many effects on top of it as possible and make it not sound like a guitar. We've always done that since day one. Like a lot of the stuff that people will hit me up about being like, oh man, what synth did you use on this? Or whatever, it's like, it's, it's a guitar. It's always a guitar.
0: I can relate to that a lot because... um uh... That happened a lot in my band too. That there was a lot of weird shit that people thought were synths, and it's like, no, that's my guitar. I don't play keyboards, and I don't like the piano roll. So just yeah. make a guitar sound crazy, which is totally doable if you try.
1: Hundred um, percent. There's like a couple parts in some of our songs. Like the, there's a one of our first songs we had like a three part song, and it's called the Mar Effect Part Three. And right before there's like a really long, like eerie stretched out thing that. I found, like, I was running a fractal at the time and I found this weird effect that had, like, this droney delay. And, like, I just rubbed, like, the back of the neck a bunch and it created this weird, like, resonant, like, weird sound that I just printed. And then that just was on the record. You know what I mean? I had some people ask me about that. Or even, like, if we're doing something like a riff wise or whatever, then we have a few riffs where, like, you know, we'll take a note and push the string off of the fretboard to kind of hear that kind of like wonky, like you're almost going like eight frets up. Like, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like if you're, if you're already like, like, let's say like, you're doing it on like the 14th fret, it sounds like you're doing, like you're hitting, hitting like the 24th fret or whatever. So I don't know, just kind of coming up with unconventional ways to incorporate certain things with the guitar and just, you know, have fun with it and just be creative because at the end of the day, it's like, now that we have stuff like Kemper and Fractal and, you know, all the Neural stuff to play with and shit, it's like, you should be stacking as many things as possible, as many delays and reverbs and stuff and pitching and stuff to try to make it sound like, you know, a layer because a lot of our songs will have like 10 layers. Like this last single that we did, Damn, was freaking out because we got to mix 20 and he's like, I'm never doing a song with fucking 45 layers ever again.
0: (laughs) I was like, yeah, I don't blame you. (laughs) So, the holy roller riff, when I hear that riff, I'm like, damn, why didn't I think of that riff? So, and then with some of these techniques, for instance, that Dan used, it's like all he did was add that second cab. Sure. It's such a simple idea that it kind of goes against what people think they should do or are allowed to do. Yeah. And so they just don't even think of it or accept it. Like, And I think lots of times, too, in mixing, people will get somewhere that they think is cool, but they did it in a different sort of way. And so then they'll just keep going and ruin it or redo it, even though it sounded cool. It was because of how they went about it. They thought they did it wrong.
1: Sure. And, you know, like even to touch base on that again, it's like even if they weren't talking shit or whatever, like for me personally, it's like for that to be anything other than just like a, a cool like, Oh, would you look at that? Like that's, that's neat or whatever. I think it's because metal and in general has like, it's, it's trained people that it has to be the specific thing. And if you're not using these specific tools or you're not using the 5150 or you're not using this or whatever, um, that it's not going to be good. You know what I mean? Like just kind of to elaborate what you're saying, because everything is so one dimensional in a sense that people just have these expectations in their brain and they're so basic. So it's like the moment that someone's kind of pushing the envelope or maybe doing something a little unconventionally, it makes them uncomfortable. And as you said, I think the ones that stand out are the ones that kind of like, you know, use a different amp other than a, a Mesa
0: or a 5150 on a recording or, you know, maybe, <laughs> or they do the simple thing yeah, because it sounded right. And they don't worry about trying to, do Incredible crazy shit. Yeah. You know the it with nail the mix, you see what you were just talking about in uh, glaring detail whenever we have a non-conventional artist on or mix, like for instance when Dillinger Escape Plan or something. High on Fire. We had them on in October and you know Kurt Ballou mixes like Kurt Ballou and uh, it's just shit's nasty in the best way. But most people in heavy music are going after templates and like the most perfect polished sound and and so rather than thinking about what is a uh, this high on fire track, it's a Motorhead tribute track. Number one, what's Motorhead like they were fucking nasty. And then is produced and mixed by Kurt Balu. What's Kurt Baloo's style? It's nasty. Nasty. <laughs> uh, so why am I? Why are you bringing in your template that makes everything sound? like you're trying to be Will Putney or Joey Sturgis or Fall Boy. That was a perfect example too. Like uh, when we had them on, people were, they had like uh, death metal kick drums and stuff on there and snare at 120. It's like, dude, this is fucking Fall Out Boy. Like, listen to them. <laughs> like, just listen to what you're doing. This doesn't work. You have to go about it differently. It's like playing it safe in a way, you know? Yeah. But that's, Dangerous, yeah. I think playing it safe is actually dangerous. I agree. So this is something I like to hear about from a musician's perspective. What do you think is the role of a producer? Um, like, what does it take for you to trust a producer? You know, with
1: Dan, I first worked with him in two thousand and thirteen. We did a record together with my first band before I joined Iwabo. I I feel like, as I said before, like we have a similar sense of sonically what what we're going after and I've never had that before with anybody else that I worked with and even when I when I was in Iwabo and we we did that record together that I wrote for it was self-produced so there wasn't really any outside inspiration or anyone you know like steering the ship in that situation so for me it's like I would imagine that if I was to work with someone else other than Dan it would be a pretty it would be a pretty rigorous process because like, I feel like it would take a long time. Like I have that trust with Dan because I've known him for seven years. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and the record that we first did, it was like, so over the top. Like we, I only had like two weeks with him, but the two weeks that we did have, we just did everything you can imagine. We quad tracked the record. Like we just, we really went deep into it and he was happy to go down that rabbit hole with me. So it showed how dedicated he was and and how interested he was in like you know getting everything to sound the way that he wanted it. And I feel like with a lot of guys they're they kind of have like a a certain limit before they're like okay, when can we is this done now? You know what I mean? Like they mm-hmm. they 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 hit a limit, which I totally understand. Like it's a business, time is money, blah blah blah, but at the end of the day like yeah, like if if I was to if I was to work with someone new, it would take a long time for me to be like okay like i don't think i could be one of those guys that just goes to like certain writing sessions in la or wherever it is and just like work with a new guy every day and just test it out because i don't think that it would work that well you know and as far as the role of the producer like dan in a sense is kind of like an uh, a hidden member of this band sometimes like he has inspired certain parts of our songs he has He's a co-write on a lot of our songs too and the, the newer stuff because I just trust him and he's just got that ear, you know, like, and it's, it's rare to find sometimes someone who just gets what you're trying to do and actually, you know, adds to what you're trying to do. It's a, it's a rare thing. So I feel like, I feel like I'm like that, you know, like in Billy Madison, when Adam Sandler is like shaking the little kid. And he's like, stay here as long as you can. Like, I feel like that's what I'm doing to Dan anytime we work together.
0: Well, it's interesting because we, uh, we talked to uh, Zach and Chris from Ghost Inside yesterday and uh, mm-hmm. kind of asked them the same question because it's just something I'm curious about. Like, what does it take for someone whose life is their music to trust someone else who's going to come in and potentially fuck it up? Um <laughs> Yeah. And they said basically the same thing about working with Putney. They had known him for a long time. They trusted him before working with him. They saw him as like an official extra member of the band. Yeah. Basically the same exact thing you just said.
1: Yeah. And I think it's also important to be a fan of the person that you're working with as well. Like before I worked with him, like he played a very very large role in that Volumes Via record. He was in Volumes and I mm-hmm. think I have listened to that record a billion times before I even went and started working with him. I was, I admired his work so much and you know, like a lot of people will feel limited to people in their town or whatever. And it's like, fuck that. Like why, if you're making shit like, and and you want it to do as good as it possibly can and everything, like why are you not reaching out to the people that you love? you know, their work the most. Why are you not just like sending an email here or there or whatever and just trying to make that connection? Because like if you're making art, you want it to you want to be stoked on it and you want to be like, you know, not limited to, oh well this guy's 15 minutes away and he only charges this much, so that's why I'm doing my record with him. You know what I mean? Like it's like you should be working with the
0: people that you actually in are huge fans of. Like that's just the way that I see it. it I remember Maynard way. from Tool saying something in the nineties in some interview that, uh, that people always asked him like how they got shit off the ground or how did they manage to like buy their gear or like any of that stuff. And, uh, and his answer was stop spending money on stupid shit, make this your priority Sell your VCR and your TV, like you don't need that stuff, and put everything into making it as good as it possibly can be. Like, actually prioritize it. Like, if you're being honest about prioritizing something, it's crazy how much you can put into it.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, like we were talking about before, there's no point in doing something if you're just going to half ass it in any way.
0: You have to be obsessed with it. You have to be. A lot of people listening might be like, Yeah, well, I can't afford my favorite dude. And, yeah, sure. I get that to a degree, but, um, do one song with them
1: hundred percent or
0: her that's that's bang on, because
1: I think people need to prioritize the quality of it you know it's 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 something that will be permanent, this is all permanent, it will live forever, so you have to make sure that whatever you're doing you're gonna be happy with it, like. For a very long time, and of course, as happy change, as possible. As happy as possible. Of course, you're going to want to like maybe look at something back, look back at something, and be like, "Oh, maybe I could have done that a little different or whatever." But for the most part, sonically, if you can years later listen to something that you've released that you know, if if you're lucky enough, a, a lot of people check out or whatever, and you can be content with how it sounds, then yeah, that should be the goal because you don't want to put any anything out that like you're just going to have regrets about later.
0: So, man, I can tell you with my band. You know, because I started recording a long time ago. And by the time that I was like, all right, I'm getting this shit signed. I had already been making a living off of recording. Not a great living, but a living for a few years. And I could have easily been the one to mix our stuff. But I decided I wasn't good enough to to do something that would get the attention of Monty Connor at Roadrunner, which was my goal. Like... I just wasn't good enough and uh so I took money that I saved and I put it into getting a better mixer which was one of the best decisions I've ever made where I could have easily it's not that I would have half-assed the mix it just wasn't good enough so it would have been a half-assed product never half-ass anything if you actually care
1: no and you know when we first started too we had the same thing it's like me and Courtney got married and then all the money from our wedding went to our first record <laughs> to be mixed and mastered by Dan, because I was like, I'm not spending a year and a bit writing and, you know, getting this record ready and then just having it be put out.
0: And it's that's commitment.
1: That's the thing. I, I also, I would never even think about mixing my own shit because it's just such a, you know, for, for me personally, it's such a conflict of interest. Like I do not do well Like if I, I, in the last little while. Like, I mean, you could
0: technically do it.
1: Possibly. Yeah. I mean, like in the last little while I've had to engineer like the singles that we've been putting out during lockdown and shit and that's fine. But like, I also look back at that. I'm like, man, I just wish I could have just focused on just playing. I don't like hitting record. I don't like, you know, having that extra responsibility because I'm, you know, I also have to edit videos sometimes and stuff too. So it's like, it's a lot of hats to wear and I would just much rather just focus on my instrument and, you know, I'm happy that soon that will be the case and I can do that. But you know, it's just a huge conflict of interest. I, f- I feel like if I had the added responsibility of how it sounded put on me too, I think I, I would light my hair on fire because I, I don't, just, you got good hair. <laughs> Save the hair.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't light that shit on fire. And I've talked about this a lot, but I want to get your thoughts. Talked about how many hats you have to wear now. And uh, you know, we've mentioned a lot that like, the definition of being a professional musician now has changed it's expanded far beyond music and uh you're kind of doing it in the way that i think it needs to be done nowadays can we talk about how you define being a professional musician and then also what are what are the different things that you think someone should be maybe not an expert at but proficient with in order to make it work dude in my opinion like being a musician nowadays and being responsible
1: for your own social accounts and stuff like that. You have to be proficient in photography, video editing, how to work a camera because it, it just opens up all the doors of like any opportunity that could possibly come your way. And then something like a global pandemic gets thrown your way and you're like, yeah, I actually can make that video for you and I can deliver it next week. You know what I mean? As opposed to, oh, well my video guy isn't around. So uh, sorry. And then you don't get that feature in that thing or whatever it is. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter what it is. So as a, mu- like a musician these days, I feel like needs to be very well versed in all of it, you know? And y- on top of that too, keeping on top of all the social media shit, getting back to people and then also being business savvy, like it's never ending. It has to, you have to act like it's your full-time job, even if you have another job to support yourself. You know what I mean? Cause the end goal obviously is for the music shit to take over and for that to be your main source of income but that can't happen until you've you know made the opportunities like actually happen and followed through with everything the competition is insane and everyone's attention spans have gone to shit so it's like if you're not constantly pumping out stuff to keep people satisfied and to really like make people remember you. Like you could put out something, this is in my opinion, you could put out something, if you put all your effort into a full length record and, and no one knows who you are, and it takes you X amount of time to do it, you put it out there and you have two singles off of it. So you do two music videos and then you've exhausted all this time. Boom, the end. That's it, you know what I mean? So it's like, why do that when you could focus on smaller bits having putting more effort and having better quality in like one or two songs having a better mixer having a better blah blah blah, then having the funds to figure out like filming like a visual aspect to it and then you have two or three visuals for something as opposed to having like these 12 songs that you know nine of them no one will ever hear there's just it's just it's a different game now and like you have to be on top of it and you always have to remind people because they're just gonna forget like if if people don't see your story like this is so stupid to say but like think about it like if people don't see your story for a while or they don't see you post on instagram or whatever they're like whatever happened to that band and like meanwhile you're like prepping a full length and you're working really hard you know what i mean it sucks that it's like that but that's where we're at and with this climate of the world and everybody being glued to their screens and shit if you're not providing them reminders they're going to forget about you and find the other band that's working harder because everybody's got a project everybody's got something they're working on you have to be well versed and you have to be able to create everything
0: one of the keys to what you said is that this is where we're at it just is what it is i know a lot of people yearn for a time when it wasn't like this but that's not productive because it is it is what it is. Like it's not going to go back to how it was 20 years ago no, or even 10 years ago or five years ago. It's going to keep going the way it's going. And the sooner that you just make peace with it, the the better, I think.
1: You you can't change it.
0: You know what I mean? Like
1: there's nothing you can do about it. So you can rather waste time bitching and complaining, or you can just figure it out and learn how to like capitalize off of it.
0: It's sense. way too big. I don't think even someone like Mark Zuckerberg could change it at this point. Like, no, it's way beyond what any one company or one person could do. Like, and uh, you know, if Facebook went away, for instance, something would replace it, just the same way that something replaced Friendster, something replaced MySpace. Like, this is the direction. Plenty of fish, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> love that site uh but yeah <laughs> love like, this is this is how the world is going and we uh we have zero influence on that whatsoever
1: yeah and i mean we we were in a very unique position because i feel like we were living in a <laughs> in a very similar world to how everything kind of ended up being in march well before march like we worked so hard to get to the point where we could go and do it for real and then that was cut short. So when we came home, our mentality was like, all right, well, then we're just going to go back to doing what we did before. As mm-hmm. with a lot of other bands they were like, well, fuck, I've been touring for four years and now that's gone. So now what do I do? And then it took them a little longer to figure out this whole online world or doing live chats or doing whatever. And then, you know, so, so we were in a very unique position. You know, we were definitely doing the online thing full time for a couple of years And then this happened. So, you know, we definitely had to change mindset because we were getting into like, quote unquote, real band mode where we were trying to go out and do it for real. But, you know, it didn't really slow us down in a sense.
0: You just went back to doing what you've been doing. It's like, all right, cool. We'll we'll just keep making videos, I guess. (laughs) And I think the thing you need to understand too when you're delegating to people is when it comes to things that you're good at, like say editing, whoever you hire might not be as good as you at first. And so there might be a slight dip in quality and a lot of people have a hard time with that and therefore will never delegate and will never really be able to move forward because they don't have a team. Uh, you have to kind of accept that at first there will be a drop in quality until you get the person up to speed, but then actually they might do better than you Yeah, in the end.
1: definitely. I've had a lot of buddies, like, you know, different situation, but I've had a lot of buddies where they... They get to a point where a manager does approach them or or someone important does approach them and, and their attitude is so shit. It's like, well, I don't need them. You know what I mean? And then they just stop being a band after a year or two and they're all bitter about it. It's like, well, he had an opportunity to make things better and he didn't, so.
0: Man, how many times have you seen that happen where someone you know gets the opportunity and just throws it away? Like, remember Battle for Sumerian? yes. I do remember that Battle for Sumerian was this nationwide battle of the bands. Like it was everywhere in like every major city, where basically uh, bands would go up against each other, and then I believe it was regional and then national. And the final prize was a record deal with Sumerian. And the uh, contest went on for a while, and a band won. And then when they got the record deal, they weren't happy with the record deal, and publicly went made a video about like one of those like pro artists like uh, you know record deals are unfair like we're better than this kind of shit, and uh, that was the end of that. No one ever heard from them again. I remember that. Yeah. I rem- I remember that video. I remember
1: everything about that and I just couldn't believe it at the time <laughs> it's so too. It's stupid. Like because it's I don't know how you could be that foolish to think that the video just being directed at that one label would then not signal every
0: other label to go, "Well, pff, never working with these guys." You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Yeah, there's <laughs> that like- and there's also the fact that you don't get a good record deal out the gate. Nobody does. That is a fantasy. Good record deals come around once you're in a position to renegotiate and you've done something. like Nobody gets a good record deal immediately. I think a lot of the music business book writers have hurt the careers of up-and-comers by making them think that they're capable of getting a lot more than they're ever going to possibly get. I remember this one time when I was in uh, Florida... Me and a uh, producer I was working with, we offered a spec deal to a friend of mine, so like in 2011. We'll produce two songs free and uh, we'll help you get signed, but then we want to do the record. And we gave them a contract for that. And I mean, my partner was an awesome metal producer. Like, we could have definitely gotten them signed. Like, it was going to be really good. And uh, there's, I mean, no guarantees of course, but like if anybody could have done it, we could have done it. Sure. Plus they were getting a free badass recording from one of the top metal studios in the world. All they had to do was be loyal and come to us after it's successful. Anyways. And we had been friends for a long time. Let me add that too. And never had like anything shady happen in our friendship or anything. Years. Uh, they gave that contract to a law student friend of theirs who just marked everything up. It was a, like a one-pager, too. It was super simple. <laughs> he marked up everything. Me and my partner looked at it and were like, eh, uh, got other things to do. This is just not worth getting into. If this is how difficult it is to like basically do somebody a favor.
1: It's like you're, you're trying to get in on the ground floor and help and then you're just being met with these roadblocks like yeah it's just insanity man like it works both ways i know so many people that have signed on to these deals for like a few thousand dollars and given the rights to all their music away and it's like couldn't you guys just have saved like you know like four or five paychecks each like like parts of it and then just figured this out on your own and then maybe later thought about getting a deal when you had leverage. Like, I don't understand why people feel
0: like... Well, that too.
1: Yeah, like, I don't understand why people feel like, you know, that right out of the gate, as you said, that they would have leverage. Like, it's a business. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't have proof of concept, and the proof of concept is in, like, people actually liking your shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's proof of concept, in my opinion. You know, like, wow, what a a crazy thing to think about. And I I don't get it, man. Like, it's like, yeah, like, maybe the best idea is to hold off until you have even a small following and then think about that. Like take it into your own hands first. Don't expect other people to just present you and give you this fucking, you know,
0: golden ticket doesn't exist. (laughs) No, it most definitely doesn't, doesn't exist. Uh, I think that the business side of things gets unfairly villainized a lot. And I know that we talked about scumbags in the industry earlier and they do and have existed, but not everyone's like that. I think most labels are cool. Most people are fine, but they gotta keep their lights on too. And uh, it's just unfortunate reality that most bands are not gonna be able to do that. And so they're not gonna get the opportunities that they wish they got. But it generally comes down to the fact that not enough people like them or the band is dysfunctional as fuck and have this habit of shooting themselves in the foot. I'm sure that we all know bands that have been around forever who just can't really seem to get further. And then every single time you realize that it's because they're dysfunctional. Or they have one member that's very outspoken on social media. (laughs) All right. We've got some questions here from listeners for you. So want to do it? Let's do it. Okay. Okay. Present them. All right. Peter Serafimov, here's a question for Mike. Do you have any advice on marketing your band? You and Spirit Box did an amazing job in 2020 and obviously the marketing and promo work was a big part of that. We'd already talked about a lot of this, but uh, is there anything we didn't cover?
1: First off, thank you. Secondly, yeah, I, w- I would say just a, a focus on creating stronger visuals as possible and focus on making sure that whenever you are communicating to people on social media and stuff like that, or people leave comments or shit like that, especially when you're first starting out, it's very important to make them feel like a part of it and to always respond. And yeah, I I think a lot of it has to do with how you communicate with people online. And it also has to do with how much content you're putting out. So I would put a lot of emphasis on content, whether it's guitar playthroughs or whatever, and just spreading them out across
0: every platform. That's going to be a huge thing when you're starting out a band for sure. All right. Harrison Moore has a multi-part question. Hey Mike, I know you're a big fan of compression going to the DI signal before using Neural. So A, what are you trying to gain from this? Anytime I try to compress my lead guitars, it feels choked in the palm mutes but what are the advantages I should be listening for when compressing my guitars and B, what are your settings? Are you using low attack time for more punch or using fast attack to chop off the peaks? Ooh, good question. Well, I
1: will say I actually don't use compression on the way in for guitars. Ha. I use compression on the way in for bass because that way it just brick walls. It basically and just makes it all consistent, especially when you're playing super low tuning shit like we do, like an F sharp. It, really really helps to have that consistent low end i could be wrong but like i don't think dan uses any compression on my guitars really like he's got a shit ton of compression on like the master bus and shit but like i don't think he's using anything on my guitars we do use compression for cleans um but yeah as far as something going on the way in only bass i would
0: only fuck with that with bass whenever we do do that it's like a fast attack definitely great thank you all right another question from harrison moore Hey, Mike, I noticed you've been switching your pickups and guitars around a lot lately. You used to use the SD Pegasus and then switch to the Lundgren M7s. Now, have you started using your Abasi Fishman's for recording? What kind of sound are you looking for when you're making these changes? Harrison with the detailed questions.
1: Yeah, he knows what's up. So basically, a lot of that was out of necessity. So bas- when I when I was playing Aristides primarily, they loaned me two guitars that I held on to for like four years, which was very, very kind of them. Actually, John, I think one of the seven strings was Ollie's old one, the Black 070. I had that for like four years. Great guitar. I had Seymour Duncans in it. First time I'd ever had them and I fell in love with them. And then I was like, oh shit. Well, everyone's saying I should try these Lundgrens. So I got the the guitar that I did buy from them. I got Lundgrens in them and I I use that religiously for recording. Now I'm trying out the Fishman stuff. And I really, really enjoy it. So for this new single that we did, the clean stuff was all split coil on the Fishman Abasi set. And then I have a set of moderns in the Balaguer that I got, the Jazzmaster guitar. And I love those too. They're very aggressive. And I, I mean, I dig active pickups. I don't think there's anything wrong with active pickups and the sound of them. I mean, if it's good enough for Metallica, it's good enough for me. I, I really dig them. They're aggressive and they just kind of offer a different tone that I don't have in my possession it's just a different tool for the job right so yeah so so far I, I've been really digging the fishmans I don't know if I will you know have them in every guitar but
0: they're great they're amazing pickups they're awesome question from Wayne Ambrose hey mike hey how do you approach writing so dynamically within one song the flow of constants is incredible and then the riff it's mega hard and is so impactful. Do you find it comes naturally on the guitar for those moments, or do you plan it out away from the instrument, like use other inspirations, like keys? And also, Holy Roller is a banger. All caps.
1: Oh, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it. Um, as far as like coming up with the dynamics and, and rather like pre-planning it or whatever, majority of that stuff comes from you know, like getting together and writing large batches of songs within a week or two. So like when we wrote Constance, it was during a time where we wrote like six other songs in a week and a half. And that one just was one of those ones where it was like 2am and we were super stoned and we just were like, I don't know, it just kind of happened. You know what I mean? Like we were just so happened to be on like a clean guitar setting and it was super verbed out. I think I was using the Pliny plugin. I can't even remember, but yeah. And, and then slowly things just start piecing together. And then it's just, you have that one moment where you're like, oh, and then in the chorus, it can all kick in and we can just have this really drony, pretty hard hitting chorus. And then it just evolves, you know? So it's not really something that gets planned. It's just something that kind of just happens. And then you just roll with it. And if you're lucky enough to get to the point where you can finish the song in the same session, it's like, then you just sit on it for a while. And if it becomes an appropriate time for you to release it, so be it. But yeah, it's just one of those things that unfortunately I I don't, don't really have insight as to like how it's done. It just kind of in the moment, if you let it happen and you just kind of like can get past and just be like, oh, now I'm at the chorus, now I'm at the second verse and I can piece this together, then it'll happen. I feel like people limit themselves being like, oh, well, I haven't hit a heavy part yet. You know what I mean? Well, it's because you haven't wanted to. So just roll with what you're doing, you know? So that's the way I view it, at least. I don't know.
0: Awesome. All right. Last question. This is from Jonathan Davies, not from Corn. Oh, damn. Yeah. (laughs) Can you talk about why you stick with drop F sharp on a seven instead of going to an eight? NPS, uh you're my biggest inspiration to writing riffs these days.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Jonathan Davis from Corn. <laughs> That's the thing, like, I hate eight strings. I just I just don't mesh well with eight strings. The necks on an eight string feel like a baseball bat to me. And I'm not comfortable with it. And like just like how it was kind of extreme for me to move to a seven at first, I just don't feel like it's necessary at this point in where we're at to move over and learn, so to speak, a new instrument. You know what I mean? Like, cause it is, it's a whole new thing. When you add that new string, it kind of fucks with your head a little bit. So if I can get the stability that I need out of a seven and I'm comfortable with it, I'm just going to roll with it. Like we go super low and thankfully as well, like with technology and shit and pitch shifting, I can get away with it. So, you know, I'm just going to keep using what I'm using because it's comfortable And it feels good. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's been great.